I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. Hello and welcome to Cheeky Scientist Radio. This show is titled How PhDs Took Over the Medical Science Liaison Industry. Uh, we are interviewing a top MSL in industry, Yuri Klatchkin. He is a PhD currently working as a medical science liaison, um, or I believe it's just called a medical liaison for Amgen. Uh, he has extensive experience in the MSL field, uh, has worked for many different co uh, companies, top companies, some of the largest in the world. Uh, he's currently a senior regional medical liaison. There we go, Yuri. I, I finally got the full job title right at Amgen. Uh, he's also worked at Celgene as uh, first a regional medical liaison and then a senior regional medical liaison as well. Um, and he's worked at Bristol Myers Squibb, another uh, very large, very well-known and respected company as a uh, clinical education liaison and medical science liaison. So he's worked at three of the biggest companies, uh, somewhat uh, ironically or serendipitously, Yuri, I'm not sure, Celgene uh, was uh, recently purchased by BMS, I believe, um, which is uh, interesting in its own. Uh, lots to talk about with Yuri. We are going to, to jump in and cover everything uh, with him, including uh, what an MSL does, for those of you who might be new to the MSL landscape. Uh, of course, why MSLs are, are taking over uh, the MSL industry. Now, depending on the data you look at, more PhDs are, are being hired into uh, MSL positions than even PharmDs. Uh, certainly it's equal, uh, but by far over the past decade, uh, the number of PhDs are skyrocketing into, into this role. The question is why? Uh, what are the skills that you have as a PhD that can get you into this highly respected role where you're paid very well, have a lot of autonomy and build uh, amazing professional relationships with, with thought leaders, key opinion leaders, um, clinicians, other scientists, business professionals, people in uh, different departments at these top companies, executives. And why is this role so valued that even so valuable that even now uh, during the pandemic uh, that uh, there's an increase in hiring? How could that be? Uh, doesn't an MSL job require a lot of travel? Uh, let's jump in and, and talk to Yuri. Uh, good to see you, Yuri. How are you? Thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Isaiah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of people that are listening right now, they've Maybe they've seen the uh, acronym MSL floating around online. They, they've talked or heard about the medical affairs industry, that, you know, what a medical science liaison is. Can you give kind of a, a, a quick uh, overview of what the role is? Imagine that you know, a PhD just contacted you on LinkedIn and said, hey, what, what's an MSL? What do they do? What do you usually tell them? Sure. Yeah, no, great question. And uh, we always struggle with a short answer for, uh, for this question, but the, the easiest way to describe an MSL career, it's like a Venn diagram where social skills and soft skills and um, and scientific acumen meet. That's kind of what we do. We are, we are the extension of our medical affairs and our clinical research department of our company into the field. And, the field, and by the field, we mean um, all of the thought leaders or the leaders in a particular therapeutic area um, that... Um, uh, that we deem important. So, for example, in my case, I, I primarily interact with uh, thought leaders in the field of dermatology and rheumatology. So, my job is to uh, build relationships and um, 
and get feedback from these leaders in these fields. And, 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 and in turn, this feedback goes back to the company, which essentially creates strategy and shapes strategy around our clinical trials. That's probably the easiest way I can explain that. No, it's good. And, and so if, I'm going to zoom out a little bit further too. So MSLs typically work at pharmaceutical companies. And you know some of our listeners might be aware of uh, what an application scientist is or something similar for like a biotechnology company. So they're, they're kind of like this uh, conduit. Uh, uh, they do many different things and they help the flow of communication from those thought leaders, as you say, which uh, all depending on the industry or the location of the country are also known as KOLs, key opinion leaders, right? And you bring that information back to the pharmaceutical company and back to the, the, uh, the clinician, the thought leader. And we'll talk more about that. But in terms of the medical affairs department, um, why does this department exist at a pharmaceutical company where it might not exist at other companies? So the, the medical affairs department, its primary role is to, um, again, it's to identify certain perhaps data gaps or, or identify certain needs in the medical community that, uh, that then in turn drives our clinical research. And I think that's the best way to describe uh, medical affairs. Of course, there's the lots of ma- many moving parts within the medical affairs department, but to differentiate to, to differentiate ourselves from um, you know from the sales department where they primarily promote and sell um, a particular therapy in our in our um, avenue we don't really do that we our primary goal is to again have these in-depth scientific conversations to discuss the data to get feedback on the data which then in turn translates into medical strategy and which in turn translates to phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four clinical trials and which, which then you end up seeing on uh, in a TV commercial. So that's kind of where, um, where we work. We, we essentially are the brains, so to speak, behind the research and, and also the rationale of why we do certain phase two, phase three and phase four trials. Mm. And thanks for bringing up those uh Treatment commercials too; those are always very <laughs> exciting. Yeah. Fun to watch. Yeah, uh, I always think of there's some comedian who uh, has a great joke about him. Says do you, he said they start with something super generic like, "Do you go to Do you go to bed at night and wake up in the morning?" Right, <laughs> right for you. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, uh, and of course, you know, another thing. Of course, the um, oh, oh, people always make fun of the you know side effect profile right. uh, on on the commercial, but of course, again. We have to disclose everything that's happened in a trial, and, for, and I always give this example: if you're doing a, if you're in a particular trial, and uh, you get hit by a car, well, that's death in the trial. You won't hear this, the reason for why a person died in the particular trial, but we have to disclose that people died in the trial. And then if you, but then, you know, that's where we get that bad rap of like, oh my God, your side effects are worse than the treatment. Well, not necessarily if you actually read the research, so. Yeah, and that's the stuff that I think is really interesting and right, you know, right. why I brought up the joke. And I, I yeah. think, you know, in this format, we can we can talk a little bit more uh, topically like that. But I do sure. want to go back to a couple of reasons why. I have two right. here, and that'll help the, the listeners understand. First, you know, why does this position uh, exist in the first place? You know, why is it increasing? Why is, you know, it's been, it's been around for a while, and... Uh, and it's in response to a lot of increasing regulations. Can you talk a little bit about that, whether it's you know the U.S. or Australia, Europe? Like, what? How did this need for MSLs arise? Right. So um, the best way to describe this is um, 
it's it's this position is fairly it's fairly dichotomous. So it's it's a two facing position. So right. So one part of me is facing the thought leader, and uh, where I provide value to the thought leader, and um, and they provide value to me. And then the other part of me is facing my company. And again, I provide value to them, and uh, and they help me you know, foster these relationships with a thought leader. So when we address the first part of this equation is where I, I actually interact with a thought leader or a KOL or, you know, however you want to refer to, uh, to this position. Uh, it's usually a, you know, a big a leader in the field, somebody who publishes a lot, somebody who does a lot of clinical trials, like a PI, for example. Um, so the way we work with them is, is one, yes, they're very, they're very smart and they, and they, and they know their data and they know the science, but they don't know all the science and they don't know a lot of the research that, that we're doing. And uh, so part of our job is to actually update them on the science. They sometimes forget the mechanism of action of certain drugs. They don't know the, the, the really minute details of how certain therapies work. They don't recall the data from you know a few years ago. They, they perhaps, they can't attend all the Congresses and see every poster and every abstract. So again, that's our job to, to give them that data, give them what they want. And in turn, we collect feedback from them, which is also very important. We call, the, we call this feedback medical insights. And, uh, and this is where they tell us, listen, like your drug sucks for this. You, you need a, your drug is not good for this particular population. You need, a, you, know, you need to look at a higher dose, for example. You need to, you need to look at uh, maybe studying this in, uh, in, in, in a more severe population or maybe more moderate population, or maybe you, uh, you need to try this drug in this particular disease because I tried it in this, this really off-the-wall disease and it worked great. So this is kind of, these are, these are the conversations that we're having with them. And this is the feedback that I bring back um, uh, to, to the company. Um, or also, but also in, on the other end of it, where let's say I present Congress data to them, or I present uh, a publication to them from our company, they will say, you know, I don't know why you guys keep publishing this, this science. It's not interesting to 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 any to, to myself or my colleagues. Why don't you Why don't you look at this? This would be more interesting. This This analysis would be more interesting. Again, this is all of value to us. And um, and the, the cool thing about this job is that we are not um, we're not tied to how much this drug sells. We are not. You know, that's why we're not in part of the sales or marketing department. I I, I don't care. If a particular thought leader likes my drug, actually, I prefer working with thought leaders who, who hate my drug because that's where we get the best feedback on how we should improve. Uh, you know, I, I don't particularly like uh, having conversations with thought leaders who love the drug, write it for everybody, and really don't can't criticize it. But then it, it provides no value to myself or the company. But I love working with with uh, with with physicians who are like, you know, this is this is where your short, shortcomings are. This is where you guys need to improve. This is where your competitors are doing better than you. And again, this, these are the conversations that are of most value to um, to the company. And then we go back to the company, and um, and we give the feedback. And usually, trends develop because our teams are you know fifteen to twenty MSLs, and we all collect this feedback from all over you know the world, obviously. Um, but even even within the United States, when we're working with within the same um, you know regulatory boundaries, we collect feedback from, you know, Seattle, Florida, California, you know, Midwest, such as myself, you know, uh, Northeast. And, and all, all this feedback will generate certain trends and uh, it'll give us an idea whether we're going in the right direction, whether we should pivot somewhere. And so all of this is of huge value to our medical affairs departments, our, our clinical affairs departments, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's kind of how we work. We face, we externally face these style leaders, but then we bring this all back internally and we have 
these discussions internally as well to figure out how how all of these conversations can benefit us as a company. That's a great uh, overview. And I think the, the two things that all of you who are listening should pull from that is this role exists and will continue to exist and really uh, increase because uh, of the increased uh, scrutiny that a lot of pharmaceutical companies uh, have, have right now compared to, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago. Uh, in terms of their, uh, in terms of selling to clinicians, right? right. The, the government overall and, and people in general, public opinion, we want clinicians making decisions not based on, you know, uh, golf packages or whatever else, but based on the things <laughs> that are actually best for um, the, the patients. And then the second, the other side of it is, is having uh, somebody, a PhD in this case, and we're going to go into this next, be the one to discuss the data with a clinician is ex extremely valuable because PhDs, are, they're trained in, in uh, research and analysis, whether it's uh, research and analysis of, uh, of, of life science data or, you know, even uh, chemistry data, even, even non-STEM data. Uh, they're, they're trained in uh, being able to research that data and or information, evaluate it for credibility, to, to look at the analysis, right. et cetera. Um, a lot of clinicians today don't have time to do that. Um, so that's that's where I wanted to go next, Yuri, and that's the main focus of uh, this particular show is why are so many PhDs hired into this role now? I mean, when I was a graduate student, I, I didn't know it. I never even heard the term MSL, and I think it was something that a lot of PharmDs and MDs were hired into, but not PhDs. Huge shift to hiring PhDs has happened over the last uh, five to 10 years. Why do you think that is? Right. No, great question. And a uh, couple of reasons for that. And, and also in, in the past, and uh, you, it's actually, uh, you can see this on, on, uh, on my team, on certain other teams, they're the vestiges of the industry where they used to be not, it used to be not, to be, used to not be a requirement to have a terminal degree to be an MSL. So a lot of times somebody who is a, you know, maybe a, a very good sales rep could transition into an, into an MSL role, and we still have I have, I have some colleagues who are who are excellent MSLs. That are, they're much more you know much more tenured uh, than myself. Have been in the industry for a long time, but you know they don't have terminal degrees. Uh, but what happened within the industry is this paradigm completely shifted, and now within most companies, it's a requirement to have a terminal degree. You have to have a PhD, an MD, or a or a PharmD. Uh, the reasoning for increase in hiring in PhDs, uh, one is there's just there's just more there's just more PhDs looking, and and two, I feel like quite a few PhDs have transitioned to this role recently, and and they've all done a really good job, and so the um, I, I feel like the visibility of PhDs and how much value they bring into teams is is fairly evident, and so and, and so that's why. Uh, a lot of PhDs are now are now getting getting hired. Uh, I, I I still see the 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 breakdown is about you know like kind of forty percent PhDs, forty percent PharmDs, and and then the rest are you know MDs and maybe nurse practitioners and 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 uh, physician assistants. That's kind of the 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 overall breakdown. But but yeah, the PhD number has definitely gone up significantly in the last um, in the last decade. And uh, and and again, I feel like the company is, as as I had mentioned, it's it's shifting. Um, they, they, actually, actually, most companies, a lot of startup companies, they will hire an MSL team way before they'll hire a, a sales force. Mm -hmm. So, um, and and so that is why they're they're of so much value. There's just so many because we can we can have the conversations with physicians before a drug is even approved. We're not discussing the drug because that would be you know 
that would be, um, uh, I guess, illegal, <laughs> you could say. But, but we can still have conversations around the disease state. We can, we can have the conversations, reactive conversations around certain data. But, but we're not promoting the drug. We're not part of marketing. We're not part of sales. We're just trying to get feedback on, on our trials. And that's why MSLs of, of, of so much value, not only in companies and huge companies uh, where, kind of where I work or established companies, uh, where they already have approved drugs in the pipeline, but also companies that are just starting out that, where they have nothing approved and they're just kind of fighting their way to get on the market. Well, the, the value um, that MSLs bring in those companies is, is, is immense because of these conversations that they're having with, uh, with these thought leaders. Uh, yeah, and I just think I want to recap again. It, it really is amazing, and, and Yuri might even be too close to it to know how amazing it is that there was very few PhDs being hired into this role previously, right. almost exclusively PharmDs uh, and to a lesser extent MDs. And now, depending on the data you look, look at, it's, it's neck and neck, even some data, e- even in some particular industries and countries, it's more PhDs. And, right. and so the trend is for you as a PhD listening to this to get hired into this role. Um, and the fact that startups will hire PhDs into these MSL roles um, before a sales team just shows how valuable it is. And I think another thing that shows how valuable MSLs are right now is that, uh, you know, during this, this pandemic, uh, it's a role that Yuri at the very beginning of the show said typically is in the field. You, yeah. you know, you, you spend what Yuri half your time flying. I mean, was it? 50%, oh yeah. We 70? spend, I mean, we're like 80, 75, 80% wow. in the field. So, and then, you know, in the field and we can look and get into that, but in the field just means, you know, I'm out there seeing people. Doesn't mean I'm flying or or, or spending nights in hotels all the time. But I'm uh, I'm out of my home office having lunches or dinners or meeting in offices or or meeting in uh, you know in hospitals with so, with my leaders. But yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, and I do want to talk about the day to day next. But sure. why haven't all of the MSLs been furloughed? Right? Nobody yeah, travel yeah. the airline industry, <laughs> right. the travel industry is like why? How come an MSL or a PhD in an MSL role is so valuable that uh, they're not just being kept. The the hiring has it continued accelerating. Some, what's going on? Right. No. Great question. And actually, we're uh, and as you've, as you've talked to quite a few MSLs recently. Well, ever since the you know the shutdown started, probably mid March, we've been busier than ever. And 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 the primary reason is because most MSLs work with therapies that are dealing with chronic diseases, and so and because of that. There's this whole new layer of COVID that 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 has appeared now around these patients. There are very sick patients, and 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 all these patients require the therapies that we support. And all of our physicians who treat these patients want the data around how do we treat patients with this particular disease, with this particular therapy, in this particular landscape of a pandemic. What happens if they get COVID? What do we do? What should we take them off therapy prophylactically? Just just as a as a precaution because of the pandemic, is that necessary? What does your data look like? What do we what like what happens if we take them off and then the vaccine and then we get the vaccine and then we'll put them back on? Can we recapture their the efficacy of the drug? How does that look like? So so they need all this data all the time. And and that's where we're on Zoom meetings, WebExes, virtual meetings nonstop, discussing uh, discussing this data. On top of that, most companies are also um, starting research into either a vaccine or a therapy for COVID. And we all have press releases around these therapies and they'll want to know why. They'll want to know the rationale of what we're doing. So 
we can speak to it on, on, on whatever we're allowed to speak on. But um, that again, that's our job. It's our job to to relay this information to our thought leaders so they are previewed and so they know what's going on um, in the field, but uh, or in, in the industry. Uh, but it is it is we're we're, we're busier busier than ever now um, talking to our thought leaders, um, answering questions, answering which are called MRFs, uh, medical information requests for conversations because they, they want to know everything. And they also want to know, for example, whether it be in, um, in hematology, oncology, or in myotherapeutic area, which is autoimmune diseases, they want to know how does our therapy, how, how would it affect vaccines moving forward? For example, let's say, let's say a COVID vaccine is out within six months. Well, how does my drug, how will it affect vaccine efficacy? Like, so they want to know all this moving forward. So it's, it's all these conversations, all these hypothetical situations, um, all this is um, uh, happening. And, and that's why we're, you know, we're busier than ever. And I think this speaks to really the, uh, the value of understanding this particular role as a PhD. This, this is one of the, I would say, five or six roles that we have really been recommending all PhDs look into, no matter what your background is, um, because it, it's so valuable right now, even in, in a pandemic. Uh, and it really goes to the core of, of those two transferable skills we keep coming back to that I would say are at the top of uh, every PhD's skill set, but very few of them think to you know, discuss it in such a general general way, research and analysis. I mean, we're seeing on a world stage what happens when people uh, the, or the general public or people are untrained in reading data. I mean, we're seeing what happens when they're untrained or they make decisions, especially big decisions that affect a lot of people um, based on uh, data or a model that they don't know how to read. They don't know uh, how modeling works. They don't know uh, you know, just just even basics like sample size. Uh, they don't know what data is dirty or clean. Right. Um, so your ability to do research, your ability to do analysis, your ability to look at a chart, know what's going on, know which questions to ask about the methodology is what makes you so valuable, especially in a, in a world where there's increasing demands on uh, a clinician's attention. I mean, there's a reason that we've seen like, you know, physician's assistants, uh, that particular role has increased. Uh, over the last decade, uh, different levels and tiers of, of nursing, et cetera, um, because as the the quality of, of clinical care goes up, uh, the MDs are going to become busier. Their attention's on that the the clinical side. You know, if if you're a PhD who maybe worked side by side uh, with MDs, uh, or they were you know at your university, or you you were in the same uh, university like where I got my PhD, the the we actually got it from the um, the medical school, medical school right. uh, part of the, the graduate school, right? Because if you're in STEM, that's that's commonly the case. I mean, you just you know how uh, different the training is, and both have uh, their value in different ways. And so I just love this role because it brings the MD and the PhD together, has them work together for the patient's benefit. Uh, so Yuri, let's get a little bit more practical. Practical while we have time. What do you do on a day to day basis? Let's say things are normal. <laughs> yeah. what, what is your normal day to day, week to week look like for those who have never uh heard you discuss the msl role sure well that's, yeah, i guess we can rewind back to you know maybe february or, or um or december or january for that matter um before all this started because because you know moving forward we we still don't know what it's going to look like um just kind of a, a bit on what's going on is for most of us we're still going to be at home and probably for most of us we'll be at home through through the end of the year that it seems to be the the guidance just because 
the the rate at which states are opening up are, are very different. And some of you know my colleagues who are covering New York, they probably don't want to be venturing out into hospitals at this point. And you know, I part of my territory is Detroit. I don't want to really go there anytime soon. So so for the time being, we're we, we're at home doing a lot of stuff virtually. But uh, let's rewind uh, the clock a month or two and uh, kind of what 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 was this role like? before the shutdown and so um and for, for most of us this is uh this is fairly routine so mondays uh mondays is a very kind of call heavy day so uh this is where we have our just a lot of, a lot of calls we we uh, have our team call with the, with all of the msls plus our directors we kind of discuss strategy and kind of what's happening uh in the field we discuss perhaps medical insights perhaps we get a you know some training on a, on a new on new data, maybe we get training on a particular disease state that's new to us. Maybe we'll have a journal club. We discuss recent publications. Uh, maybe we'll have some one-on-one conversations with with our you know with our directors uh, about how things are going in my in my territory. So that's that's Monday. Just a lot of calls, um, and also Mondays is when we you know, I kind of plan out my week uh, to to figure out who I'm going to see uh, you know in, in in the in the coming in the coming days. Um, kind of get ready for, for, for travel if, if that's what I have going on. And usually Tuesday through Thursday is when I am, you know, so to, so to, so to say, so to speak in the field. Um, I usually have uh, appointments, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, let's say if I go to, if I fly somewhere, let's say I go to Detroit, I usually have, um, you know, meetings pretty much, pretty much, uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner meetings, uh, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe sometimes Thursday morning, maybe I fly back uh, Thursday afternoon or Thursday evening, depends on how, um, when my meetings are. And then I get home, you know, Thursday afternoon or Thursday evening. And then Friday is kind of my uh, administrative day where I record all my insights from the week. I record my interactions with who, who I've met with that week. Um, I maybe fill out an expense report uh, that's, that's due and, uh, maybe catch up on any, on any literature, maybe any emails and, uh, uh, you know, respond to some emails from my care walls that, uh, that have requested maybe literature or, or particular clinical, clinical answers. And, and then, and then that's it. And then, uh, we'll kind of start back up. Um, uh, but that's like a, that's like a typical day in the field. Um, how, uh, sorry, a typical week in the field. However, some of our weeks would be, you know, Congresses or, con- or big conferences, which would uh, which would require us to travel somewhere and we just attend talks, uh, you know, from you know usually from eight a.m. till about you know two or three p.m. and then and then usually in the evening we also meet with our thought leaders. Uh, you know, conferences are also a great opportunity to network with um, with uh, thought leaders uh, in our field in our territory. So, in conferences, we still our, our priority is still to meet with our with our KOLs. Um, and uh, that's it. I'd say that pretty much covers it. There's some, there, there's some like off weeks where we have maybe an internal meeting where we, we get once we get together once or twice a year to um, to discuss strategy and um, just to just to kind of see everybody uh, on on your team. We do we do that a couple times a year. Uh, tw- a couple times a year we do speaker training where we, we train our promotional speakers on the new data. We do that usually early on in the year, maybe first or second week of January. Uh, that's, that's a pretty, pretty intense three, four days uh, with our, with our KOLs. Um, but for the most part, that's, that's pretty much covers it. A lot of Congresses and just a lot of uh, meetings um, 
in the field. But but the fun the fun part about congresses is they're well they used to be in you know usually fun locations, and uh, so the travel was um, you know was was a bit of fun. You know you get to go to international meetings or or meetings that are you know fun places. You know Caribbean, Hawaii, wherever. So uh, yeah, so it's uh, it, it's it's pretty cool, and um, and 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 you get to build your relationships with your KOLs. In those in those fun places. So, but that's I'd say that's kind of summarized it. It's um, I would say eighty percent of it is this day to day stuff that I've described, and also congresses. That probably takes most of my time. And in terms of uh, just to sum all of that up with the thing that you love the most about the position, whether it's I don't know the kind of the level of respect or the autonomy. I'm not sure what it is for you. And then the thing that you would say in in general across the MSL field? Like what is the thing that the MSLs, I don't know, complain about the most or that's the most tedious? Sure. I, I think the what people like, people like the most is the, well, well so like, I, guess, I guess selfish stuff first. Um, you know, the, the pay is obviously really good for, for a lot of MSLs. It's their terminal job. They, they become an MSL, they just kind of, and you know they they just remain being an MSL for the rest of their life till they retire. Usually, if you work for a for a pharmaceutical company, the benefits are great, retirement's great, the salary keeps going up every year, bonuses are great. There's so there's really no reason to um, you know I don't know pursue other other careers so, so to speak. Of course, uh, people are uh, some people are more ambitious than others, and some some want to manage or become directors or move in house, and, and that's that's fine too. But for most people, that's a terminal job, and it's and they're, they're perfectly happy. And uh, and also the job only gets easier the more you do it because your relationships uh, get um, you know get better and more solid. And so you know I have I have some counterparts in the Midwest that have done this job for 15 to 20 years and, and they go on vacations with their KOLs and uh, you know, they're like, they're like their best friends. So, and, and for somebody who's maybe starting out or maybe has been doing it for a year or two, well, you're still kind of like, hello, doctor or so-and-so. And you know, it's more formal, but the longer you do this, the easier it gets. And, and so um, for a lot of people, the, 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 um, the lifestyle is, is awesome. The flexibility is obviously really cool. You get to make your own schedule and uh, it's almost like running your own business. You, you know, yeah, I've, I've described, for example, that I like to do calls Mondays and, and then administrative work Fridays. But, you know, what if, but let's say my colleague, maybe he, he has his kids sports, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Well, maybe he gets everything done Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and uh, and then he can do all his admin stuff and all his calls that he needs to do, uh, you know, at the towards the end of the week. So we have that flexibility to do that. Um, and, but then, but then there's also this altruistic uh, viewpoint of why we do this or why this job brings us satisfaction, and 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 that is we we actually do help patients on a daily basis. You know, a lot of times when we present data or discuss a particular, uh, you know publications or or uh, or efficacy or, or or safety data with our with our clinicians they they apply this right away to their patient either that day or that week and and that translates into you know helping a, a patient's a patient's life you know they uh, or start saving a patient's life so so that is where we as 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 scientists can explain stuff to our clinicians where they can connect the dots in their head and and actually and actually improve the treatment paradigm 
for for their patients. So that's that's the big the big of why of, of, of why we do this job and why this job brings so much satisfaction to a lot of MSLs. Hmm. And can't let you off the hook with this. What's the what do you what was the tedious thing? What what's like the oh, one sure. thing that's just uh, I, I would say the most uh, challenging? Uh, just to be realistic for anybody who's considering this role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. The the, uh, the most challenging thing is is travel um, um, for the for a lot of us. You know, especially um, and, and that differs because of different family dynamics. You know, um, for somebody who has, you know, I have, I have two kids who are uh, who are you know they're school age kids, and so they're pretty self-sufficient in, in terms of, you know, doing their homework and, and, and going to school. But, you know, I you know you, you don't, sometimes you don't see them for, for a few days and kind of, yeah, that becomes hard. Um, so, so the stuff, stuff like that is, um, is, is obviously, you know, can be, can be difficult, can be challenging. Uh, another, another aspect of it is, um, is, uh, you know, making appointments with your KOLs. They're, they're very busy. They have, um, you know they have their own obligations, and and initially when when I started into the in, in this in this field, yeah, it was challenging to to see people that don't know me. They um they don't they don't know what you know what kind of value I can bring them. But then but then eventually you 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 try and you meet them for five minutes, and then ten minutes, then twenty minutes, and then and this kind of blossoms into these relationships, and then eventually collaborations and projects and. And then they become, um, you know, a clinical trial site, and so that, all that—it's—it's—it's it's, it's pretty cool how these relationships grow, and not only do they help your career, but also they help the company and ultimately um, help the patients. So, so I, w- I would say those two are probably most difficult. You know, the the, the, the travel, the plan, planning the travel, uh, because a lot of times you'll, you know, your our our guidance or guidance in most companies is you have to book flights. Two weeks ahead of time, and so let's say you have a KOL, and and you have all these appointments, and you have your flight booked, and then they email email you back, and then and they cancel because something comes up. Well, then you have to scramble and find new appointments or cancel flights, and, and kind of redo your uh, you know you redo your appointments for that particular particular week. So so that part is that part is challenging, but um, but it, it's just you know what you got to remember is none of it's you know personal. They just because they. They don't want to see you because they don't like you. They don't want to see you. They just don't know you. And um, and and you got to be persistent initially, and then afterwards, it's uh, it's it's downhill. So it's pretty it's pretty easy afterwards. But I'd say those are the two things that are probably most challenging for most MSLs. Hmm. Last line of questioning: uh, If sure. somebody's been listening and they think you know this might be a good path for me, yeah. uh, can you help? Kind of, uh, I would say first break down any sort of uh, limits that. Those listening, right, as PhDs, we always kind of tend to put up for ourselves first. Like, I can't do this because my background is XYZ. I have no clinical experience. Maybe break down those limits and then tell me the, the first thing that you would do after realizing you, can't, you can get into this role. What's the first thing that you would do to uh, uh, start pursuing it? No, great, great question. And um, I, I'm, I was guilty of this. I had limiting beliefs when I, when I was, uh, you know, my fifth or, sixth year, fifth or sixth year into my postdoc. I was like, ah, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah, I was the same same way. I had no really no clinical background. <clears throat> a lot of my a lot of my research was um, you know maybe translational at, at best. Um, but um, but yeah. So the first thing the, the here's the thing is I, I really did not have the tools that you all have to pursue this role. I did not. You know, yes, I had I had cheeky scientists from you know in in 2014, but 
but uh, and that kind of gave me the confidence to to pursue this role. But um, but also I didn't have I didn't have a lot of the strategies that are available um, to all you know to all the listeners on here. Um, and really, the the first thing I learned from from cheeky scientists and from Isaiah is to is to network, and that's the first thing I started doing is to is to talk to other MSLs. And and my primary goal was to <clears throat> just to learn more about the role. Like I just uh, I kind of because you read the job description and there's just so much on it, and it's like it's so vague and just ambiguous, and it's just talking about and all this like jargon, and you don't really know what it means. But when you kind of get into the weeds and talk to a bunch of different MSLs and get their idea of what they do, you kind of start to realize that, oh my God, this is, this is, this is really cool. This is something I would really like to do. And it also gives you confidence that, that, oh my God, I could totally do this. You know, this is, um, this is, this is totally up my alley. Um, and, and I would love to, love to, to pursue something like this. Um, and then, and then if, if, if that's, if that's a decision that you end up making, then my next advice would be, you got to, like jump both feet in, you got to go all in into this field and um, and just and just pursue it with uh, you know with all your might um, because if you're not if you're kind of wafty on whether you want to do this or not well well then your your strategies on how to get into this field will be very wafty as well you'll be you know you know you won't you won't work as hard on networking you won't work as hard on uh, perhaps your LinkedIn profile your resume your cover letters. Um, um, Etc. And then and then it'll come across and and phone screens and interviews. You'll it'll come off as, as as unsure. And ultimately, what what a lot of these companies want is somebody who really wants to be an MSL and somebody who really wants to be at that company. That's that's what they're looking for. They want somebody who's like super motivated and they know and and, and somebody who who really thinks this is the only career for them. And and when they see that commitment or they hear that commitment on the phone and you know moving forward it'll be on on WebEx. Or with Zoom or whatever, uh, they really want to see that that passion uh, for that role for that company, and uh, and if you're not sure about it, it'll 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 come across very easily. Like you know, we we interview people all the time, and we totally see somebody who is like, hey, I'm not, who's not sure whether they want to be there or not. Um, and so the first thing I did was network, and that's that's the that's the first thing I did, and uh, that helped me a lot. The second thing I would do, I didn't do this, but I always I always give this advice. If you want to get clinical experience, it's not difficult. Um, I would recommend going to grand rounds at your teaching hospitals, at your universities. They're they're all open to the public. You know, maybe not now, but um, they will be moving forward. Um, you can also get involved in clinical research within your university or or teaching hospital, and you can find any trial on clinicaltrials.gov within your geography. There's you know there's literally hundreds of them. And, and so that's those are just a couple of ways I would I would get involved in um, in, in clinical research uh, if that's if, if that's what you're lacking. So you know I wish I would have done that. Uh, I honestly wish I would have networked more. I, I I networked. I thought I was networking a lot, but now looking back, it was nearly not enough um, because every MSL you talk to, you will get a different answer of what this job is about. If you talk to my colleague in Florida, he'll give you a different answer. If you talk to my colleague in Seattle, he'll give you a different answer of what they do because they're they're more senior. The care walls are different. Their responsibilities are different. Their, um, you know, their background is different. So that, and that's the thing. That's why networking is so important. You want to really learn more about this job. You really want to learn the language that we speak, like this jargon that we speak, because that's a language that will be spoken to you on phone screens and on um, on-site interviews. So that would be my my advice. I would say networking and perhaps getting some 
clinical exposure if you don't have any yet. Yeah, I think the two most important things you hit on is number one, uh, there are best practices in your job search, but of course there's going to be uh, you know outliers and things that are specific per country, per state, per right. individual you talk to. So don't let that throw you off. You'll hear maybe hear some advice here. Uh, you know, we have people that say, oh, cheeky scientist taught this resume or this, but this person said X, Y, Z. And I'm like, well, they're an N of one. And yeah. if you're applying, and also doesn't mean that an N of one is not valuable. If that, you know, that person happens to be a decision maker at a company, follow their advice. So I think that's great. I, I like, I love your ideas on uh, getting out there and, and getting more knowledge, grand rounds, uh, et cetera, yeah. things that you can get, ex- you know, get some exposure. Um, networking is the big key. And uh, we have, you know, we've done previous shows on this. Uh, my, my last question is, you know, who do you think this role would really not be for? Maybe you can just kind of compare and contrast it just based on what you've seen. You talked about certainty, which for all of you is huge. If you're applying to a job and especially if you get on the phone for a phone screen video interview, you better show that you want that position over anything else. Not that you're just entertaining a lot of different ideas. That's something that that's a demeanor that we learn in academia to never commit. You better commit if you want a job at this level. Um, But what would you say just in general from the PhDs, you know, the PhDs that you've interviewed for MSL jobs, um, what stands out is the person that's a a good fit for this role and and those who may want to consider other roles. (laughs) That's a a good question. Um, I would say, you know, and, and back to your point, I would say somebody who, if you like, if you say you network with everybody and, and you, uh, and and you've kind of you've, you've learned everything you could about this role, and you still kind of like, I'm not sure. Yeah, don't do it. It's not it's not for you. It's going gonna, gonna to waste your time, and uh, it's totally not for you. But if you if you're somebody who loves to talk science, and um, because it, it does it does not you know the, yeah, there's a social aspect to it. Don't even that that's completely not a requirement. You don't you don't not need to do any meals with any of these uh, of uh, clinicians. You can do this job. Without any meals, you can meet you can meet this you can meet these KOLs in our offices. So I would say for somebody who who loves to discuss science and 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 have kind of um, in depth discussions about 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 data, uh, but also somebody who has you know I'd say good uh, emotional intelligence, which is you know something that you some some people you know. For any, for anybody, that's a skill that you develop. But somebody who wants to maybe develop that, I think that job is is for you. You know, for me, it was a process of elimination. Like I really, like, I have I have publications, but man, I, I could not. I, I hated writing. I hated writing papers. I hated uh, bench work. I hated animal work. <laughs> what else could I? Be, what else could I do? Right. So then, so then you kind of look at what else is out there for me, and that kind of fit my strengths i I actually um i I really enjoyed presenting at journal clubs in my department when i was a phd student i love i love preparing you know seminars for um you know for my my qualifying exam or or for my you know year-end seminars whatever the requirement was for my you know for my coursework in my phd like that was my that was the favorite part for me it was like uh i was like on 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 stage presenting my data I, i really worked hard at practicing these talks and how to present my you know my my data but but then when i went back to into the trenches you know pipetting uh, and, and, and being stuck in a microscope room like that was just you know personal health for me so so that's kind of how i identified this career for me is i i enjoyed science communication more than i enjoyed the rigor of um of wet research and and 
that kind of it's it was that black and white for me and perhaps it may not be as black and white for you but uh but really focus on where your strengths are and um and then this decision will be a lot easier for you but i felt like my strengths were were that and and another another way and you know Isaiah knows this you know uh we always quote um you know drucker's books on uh, on careers but the best way to identify your strengths is ask for feedback ask mm. somebody who is honest with you and who will give you feedback ask him hey do you think i'd be good at at this i think i you know i think i'd be i'm i'll be better at at research or i think i'd be better at somebody who's communicating science externally you know orally or how, uh, however am i good at presenting you know i would i would ask those difficult questions from your you know your your mentors or somebody who you look up to and that's really the best way to kind of learn more about yourself because um we're we're our own worst critic and a lot of times some a lot of times we don't think we're good at something where others perceive us as being experts at it and so i think that's the best way to go about it to figure out your your strengths and whether this job is right for you perfect yuri thank you very much well said uh we look forward to watching your continued career success oh thank you so much as i appreciate it thanks for having me on that of course takes us to the end of this radio show again special thanks to yuri for coming on uh for those of you who don't know yuri's story uh he was unemployed uh that's right he did uh, a postdoc for uh, several years, became unemployed, was on unemployment. I know he keeps his unemployment records in his desk as a, a kind of reminder or motivator. Uh, after that, he did another uh, postdoc. And then when that lab ran out of funding too, he, he finally said enough is enough and decided to uh, take his career into your own, his own hands, which of course we recommend for all of you. And uh, Yuri is just he's a, a great person, uh, an incredible professional, incredible MSL. And uh, you can connect with him on LinkedIn. Uh, he's contributed a, a lot to Cheeky Scientist over the years, and we thank him for that. So that's the end. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees? cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button, and click on it, and enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees, nobody else offers this. 
phdsgethired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD and remember that knowledge is power and your network is your net worth. Oh, 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 oh,